My guest today is a full-time writer and consultant working with schools throughout the United States, and he is a professor at Western Carolina University in North Carolina, where he received not one, but two prestigious awards for excellence in teaching. He is the author of over 25 books for children and teachers, including my personal favorite, Saturdays and Tea Cakes. <laughs> with a career spanning teaching, public speaking, and writing, he has become a leading voice in literacy education. Please help me welcome to Unbanned Coolies, children's book author, Lester Lamanac. Thank you. Growing up, did you have a favorite book that inspired your love for reading? Um, I had two, actually. Um, I learned to read alongside all my classmates. Nothing outstanding, wasn't a prodigy, didn't lag behind, just sort of at the ordinary pace. But I wasn't an avid reader. I knew how to read, but, you know, it wasn't that exciting to me. I loved having someone read to me. I loved when our teachers read aloud to us. Um, the librarian, Mrs. Hand, read to us every time we visited. And I remember in third grade, she read The Boxcar Children. The very, and I did not realize there were 20 something of those. So she read the first one, and there was only one copy, so we couldn't get it and read ahead. But I loved having that story in 20 minutes a week, little segments from her. And then in the fifth grade, my family moved to Key West, Florida. And we were there for um, almost a year. And um, my father was a construction worker, so he was working a job there. So we lived in a trailer park, and we decided not to have a television because we weren't going to be there long. We didn't take our belongings with us. We just packed up some clothes. So we were driving our mother crazy. I was in the fifth grade, my brother was in the seventh grade, and my sister was one. So she had three kids in a trailer, and all we could get on the radio was a station from Havana, Cuba, and it was all in Spanish, and none of us spoke Spanish, so we were in a mess. So we could hear the music, but we didn't understand anything. So one day at the grocery store checkout counter, there was this wire rack that spins around, and it was full of books. And my mother just looked at my brother and me and said, each of you get two books. Just get two books. Because you're going to go home and just read. I just need a break. So I got um, a little paperback autobiography of Abraham Lincoln and The Wizard of Oz. The Abraham Lincoln book was kind of interesting. But The Wizard of Oz captivated me. I think it was the first time, and remember, I was in the fifth grade. I believe it was the first time that I actually fell inside a story and just lived there. So much so that at night when I would hear palm tree fronds rubbing against the side of the trailer, I would wake up and be convinced that it was flying monkeys trying to get into my window. So just the power of the story to get inside your head and take you someplace else and actually cause you to suspend your own logic and your own judgment. Um, probably didn't start until about fifth grade. After years of teaching, can you share the pivotal moment or inspiration that led you to embark on this journey of writing for young readers? Yeah, I began writing in the 1990s. Um, well, I'd been writing because I was a college professor. And as a college professor, 
part of your job is to publish academic work. So the kinds of things that I would write for children would not count um, as credit for doing the kinds of things you have to do as a college professor. So I devoted my writing time early in my career to doing academic journals and books for teachers and that sort of thing that, that matter in your process for tenure and promotion. I had um, taught children's literature in the university for a long time. I had taught young children. And when I taught in the elementary school, uh, reading aloud was a major part of our morning. Um, and sharing stories with kids was a big part of the day. And I love doing all the voices and acting out the parts and just being silly with books. So when I got to the place that I was allowed to sort of pursue my own interests uh, with writing, I decided I'd taught children's lit. I understood what, I understood what made a good book. I had read thousands of stories to kids that I would just give it a go. And I hear people all the time saying, you know, I really want to write a book. I'm going to write children's books when I retire. And my response always is, why are you waiting? You know, I waited so long. I could have been doing this. They might not have gotten published, but I would have been so much better at writing them because I would have had so much practice. So I wish I hadn't waited as long as I did, but that's the reason it took me a while. Your commitment to children, seeing themselves and their families in your books is admirable. Can you elaborate on the importance of representation in children's literature and how it influences your storytelling? If children don't see themselves represented in a text, then they believe that the notion of books, the idea of literacy, isn't something that people like them are supposed to do. Or they get the notion that people like me aren't important enough to be inside a story. So typically what I'm doing, if you, if you look at a story like Snow Day, for example, as the story unfolds, there is an adult male, two children, and the weatherman is announcing that it may snow tonight. The adult male comes out of what appears to be the kitchen. He's got on an apron and he's holding a spatula. So we believe that he's cooking. Nothing in the text says that he is the father or that he is cooking. The two kids are excited about the snow and he seems excited about the snow. There is no other adult in that story. Now you can imagine if you are a kid who lives at home with a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, you can go, oh, the mother's probably not home from work yet, or the mom is doing laundry, or the mom is out mowing the grass, or, you know, the mom's doing something else. She's just not here. If you're a kid who lives with only one parent, you look at that and go, oh, that's just like our house. If you're a kid who lives with two dads, you go, oh, well, the other dad is probably not, not home yet, just as you would have with the mom. It presents a situation where whatever your family structure is, you're able to look at it and see it in that same space. If you look at the King of Bees, um, that story, uh, the little boy's name is Henry, and Henry is and his aunt live in the low country. Now, you can assume that he lives with her full time, 
or you can assume he is living there for the summer or like on a summer vacation. And so if you're a child who lives with someone other than your parents, like a grandparent, an aunt, um, an adopted family, then you can see yourself in that story. I'm trying to create situations that don't box you in to one way of being, which allows a child or several children to have an opportunity to see many parts of themselves inside a story. Um, and as important as I think it is for children to see aspects of themselves represented, I think it's also important that they have opportunities to see those who are not like them. That uh, Rudy Sims Bishop reminded us that children need windows, mirrors, and doors for stories. And so I think those windows are also important that children are able to see something beyond what they know and, and recognize, oh, there's another way of being. Not better, not worse, just another way of being that how I live is not the only way that people do live. Keeping a writer's notebook and constantly observing the world around you to find story ideas is a fascinating approach. Could you share an example of a children's book idea that originated from seemingly ordinary moment in your everyday life? Sure. Um, my next book um, that comes out in 2025 is called The Cat Like That. And when my son was younger, we were on an island off the coast of North Carolina called Ocracoke. It's accessible only by ferry. So lots of people ride around on bicycles. So we had rented bikes and we were out riding around. And Ocracoke is a place where there are lots of cats. And they don't belong to anyone. They belong to everyone. And they're called Okra cats, meaning that the community takes care of them because it's a lot of turnover with uh, vacation people. And so there are cats everywhere. And they're taken care of by a humane society group that provides food and veterinary care. Yeah. Can anyone just take them and adopt them? Um, no, you can't take them off the island because oh. they they belong to, you know, like the community. So there's this one big cat, and I wish I could remember the cat's name, but it was one of those marmalade cats, kind of orange-colored cats. And he was huge. He was the biggest cat I'd ever seen, just kind of waddling around, and then he would just lie on the mats in front of doors. And we're riding our bikes, and I'm going, a cat, a cat, a big, round cat. Have you ever seen a cat like that? And then my son would say something back to me, and then I would say something back. And we did this little chanty kind of rhyming pattern. And I left that in my notebook for years, years. And then something sparked that memory, and I thought, where is that? That's in my notebook. And I went back and found it and tweaked it and redid it. And so now it's um, in press or in production. Nicole Wong has done the art, and the art is fabulous. And the story is really simple. Um, but it started from riding your bike and seeing a story. I'm working on a story um, right now that started because um, I was raking leaves in 2018 in the fall. And where we lived at that time, there were lots of oak trees. So leaves every day, there would be new leaves to rake. And some people would go, why don't you just wait and rake them all at the end? And it's like, I could never do it. There'd just be too many. So I'm here raking leaves and I feel this big thing pop me in the head. 
Then I look up and there's nothing up there. I'm thinking, what in the world was that? Then I look down and I see the most enormous acorn I have ever seen. It's like huge. And I picked it up and thought, well, if I had been a mouse, that would have killed me. So I put that acorn on my table. I said to people, you know, when they visit, have you ever seen an acorn that large? And it's like, never. You know, that's the biggest acorn I've ever seen. They hit me in the head. So I wrote in my notebook, you know, what would happen if a mouse was hit in the head by an acorn? Well, that evoked the images of a story called Chicken Lickin'. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. It's an old folk story, but it's a story that used to be told a lot when I was a kid. And it was a cautionary tale. You know, the sky was not falling. Chicken Lickin' was just not understanding the way things work. So I created this little squirrel um, whose name is uh, Furman. And... Furman's hit in the head by the acorn, and he assumes that there are people who are just aggravating him, and he gets rather agitated. So it's a story I'm developing. Every story I have published has started with something, just an ordinary event, Saturdays and tea cakes um, that you mentioned earlier that is beautifully illustrated by Chris Soonpeak. That story started because I smelled cookies baking in a grocery store. And instead of going, mm, the cookies smell good, I think I'll buy a dozen. I started thinking, what that reminds me of something. And it's not like, what is it? It's, what does it remind me of? Where does it take me in my memory? And it took me part of the way through the grocery store to recognize that what I was remembering were the smells of my grandmother's kitchen. So when I got to my car, because I keep my notebook stays wherever I go, um, I keep my notebook in a bag and like whatever little day bag I'm carrying around. So it was in my car. So when I got to my car, I wrote six pages of just physical description of her kitchen. What do we remember about her kitchen? And that launched a story that took a couple of years to kind of create along the way. So um, little things everywhere. If you keep a notebook and jot things there, it's like planting a seed. You don't know when it'll sprout and when it will become a story, but when it does, it's magic. The Sunsets of Miss Olivia Wiggins addresses the theme of aging and the power of love. Could you explain the inspiration behind this book and what message you hope young readers can take away from it? Sure. Um, the message... Uh, well, let's back up a little bit and look at the inspiration for the text. When my son was four, his maternal grandmother was in the throes of Alzheimer's, and she reached a place in that disease where she had lost enough of her recent memories that he no longer existed in her memory. So when we would visit, she didn't recognize him, and it gave him a great deal of confusion. And so the only story I knew at the time that helped the child understand that as we age, some people lose memories and there are things we can do around them to be helpful was a story by Mim Fox called Wilford Gordon MacDonald Partridge. And so I started drafting a story um, that was more parallel to his experience. Before the story was finished and published, 
my father's mother also um, developed Alzheimer's. And I watched um, as she regressed in her memories, the things that she talked about were things I didn't know. You know, they were because she's talking as if she's 17 or she's 20 rather than 80 because her memory is falling backwards. So what I did was just take those two different family experiences and weave them into one and create a great-grandson rather than a grandson who's coming to visit so that she could be fairly elderly and there would be an intermediary, an adult, uh, the grandmother as the adult who would be there with him when he went to visit. And coming back about with the theme of love, I believe the greatest gift that adults can give a child is unbridled attention. The idea that I am focused on you and I'm not looking at the phone. I'm not trying to have a conversation with an adult over here. I'm not trying to watch a movie. I am with you. And right now, what you and I are doing is the most important thing. So if we're playing checkers or we're building Legos or we're just having a tea party, whatever it is that that child is wanting to do, you are fully present for them. Very few children get that opportunity with the adults in their lives. And so I think when you look at what happens in the sunsets of Miss Olivia Wiggins, when Troy comes to the nursing home to visit his great-grandmother, he provides that to her. And I don't think children can know how to provide that unless we provide it to them. So the idea that um, love is something other than buying gifts and showing up, it's giving yourself, it's giving your time, it's being attentive. And if you notice in the story, whenever he visits, he always brings something that is significant to her in the past. The toy horse, the bunch of lilacs, the things that he mentions and, and brings are things that were once significant to her, believing that it will help spark a memory of some sort, even if he doesn't have access to those memories, even if they are only in her mind, which they were in this story. But the message to kids is that your presence matters. Even, even if this person doesn't speak to you, even if this person can't respond to you, the fact that you are there and that your voice is a part of the ambient sound and that the smell of you is there, then that love is felt, that you're important in the, import, in the role of those people. Barbara's Wiggly Wobbly Tooth explores the excitement of losing a tooth, an experience many children can relate to. Could you share your own memories or observations from teaching that inspired this delightful story? When I taught first grade, I was the person who pulled the teeth. Like some teachers didn't want to pull teeth for different reasons, but I pulled teeth. I didn't care. So, you know, the kids would come and knock on my door and go like, my teacher said you should pull this tooth. So I would just mess with kids. It's like, oh, I don't know. Is it ready to come out yet? You know, like, is it this one over here? No, no, don't pull that one. Is it this one over here? No, it's up there. And it's, I would just mess with them. And eventually when they're trying to show me their tooth, no, it's this tooth. Half the time they would pull it out on their own, just out of frustration, trying to show me which one. You know, then I would take a tissue, wrap it up, put it in their pocket and, you know, tell your teacher she owes me $5, you know, for pulling your teeth. So if you teach first grade, 
And nowadays, if you teach kindergarten, because kids mature more quickly. But if you teach kindergarten or first grade, you're going to deal with wiggly, wobbly teeth all year long. So anyone who's ever taught little people can give you dozens of stories. And bigger kids are always saying things like, oh, don't let your cousin know about it. Don't let anybody try to pull it out with string. Oh, my brother wanted to pull my teeth out with pliers. You know, you hear all these little horror stories. So I just flipped it into a story. And then at the end, have the grandmother show up to make taffy. And when they bite into the taffy, his teeth comes out. His tooth comes out. But when she bites into the taffy, all of her top teeth come out because she had dentures. Saturdays and Tea Cakes is a heartfelt tribute to your maternal grandmother and your mom. Can you share a bit about your special bond with your grandmother and how it influenced the creation of this book? My uh, grandmother, my mom's mother, uh, Grandmother Thompson, was probably the most significant adult in my childhood. And part of, and, we, and I don't know why. You know, it, no one knows what it is that creates a bond. My brother had that sort of bond with my father's mother. They lived out in the country and on an old farm, and my brother liked that sort of thing. My mother's mother lived in town and on a street, and you could walk in, you know, and I liked that sort of thing. My grandfather was named Henry Lester Thompson, so I was named for him. And um, my mom is one of four girls. She had two brothers, and both of those brothers died as infants. One died at birth, and one died within a couple of months. One of those boys' names was Edward Lester, so he was named after his father. And I kind of believe that, you know, like, here's my grandfather with that name. Here's one of her sons with that name, and he died. And here I come along with that name. So I, I don't know if my name had anything to do with that or if it was just that we liked the same sort of things and we enjoyed one another's company. My grandmother Thompson did not drive. She was um, of the generation when a lot of women didn't learn to drive. So she had to depend on her daughters and neighbors to take her places and pick her up. So when I would ride my bike and spend the day with her and sometimes spend the weekend with her, she had company that she didn't have because she lived alone. My grandfather uh, died when I was seven. And um, so she lived alone. Her children were grown. Um, and so when I would visit, she would have like someone to talk to, someone to interact with. We would do little chores. And that created this adult for me who gave me that thing I mentioned earlier. I got undivided fully present attention from her. Whenever I was with her, I was the only thing that mattered in the world. She listened. She responded. She came up with projects for us to do. And it was always about us doing something together. No other adult gave me that. So I think she was that magic special person. Finally, for aspiring authors who dream of writing children's books, what specific steps do you recommend they cultivate to bring their stories to life? One, I think, is make sure first that you have a repertoire of story in your head, that you have read hundreds of the kinds of books you want to write. Understand before you start 
what comprises a children's story? You know, how much language? What the images are going to do if you're writing picture books? Um, what are the themes and characters and things you will find inside those stories? Do you expect... Um, that a kid is going to fall in love with this book? Is it something that they're going to step inside and make connections to? Another thing I would say is start the habit of keeping um, a collection of your thoughts and ideas and words and opening sentences. And you can do that on your phone in a notes section on your laptop someplace in a file. I I like a journal. Yeah, I, I prefer doing it in a notebook. And so I have dozens of these and I buy this specific type of notebook because it has lined uh, pages, they're numbered, and it has a place for the date. So if I start a story on page 32 and I don't think about it again until page 17 or 117, I can write a little note that says continue to 117 and I can trace the thoughts for that story across an entire notebook or two or three. And I fill up about one of these a year maybe because once I get going with something, I do transfer to um, the computer and put it all inside there. And then I only add things to this when I am out and about and, don't, and an idea comes and I don't have my computer with me. And I think the habit of noticing and making note is something that writers do that people who think about writing but don't do it, don't do. So getting in the routine of capturing those things that captivate you and then sitting down from time to time and saying, you know, I think I could weave this into a story. This could be something interesting. And you have to get rid of what Natalie Goldberg calls monkey mind. You kind of have to get the little monkeys out of your head that are whispering, you can't do this. You're not a writer. Who do you think you are to be writing for children? You just have to tell all those monkeys to go to bed. Like, no, get out of my head. You you don't have a room in here. You're no longer welcome. And just sit down and act as if you can. And a whole lot of life is acting as if you can. Um, because if you say, I can't, you won't even try. So really just sitting down and getting started. And as I said earlier, those people who stop me at conferences and in schools going, oh, I want to write a children's book. I have so many ideas for a children's story. I'm going to do that when I retire. It's like, you know, when you retire, you're going to have 10 million other things that occupy your time. You will always have some reason not to do it. So just start. Just get someplace and start. And you don't have to share it with anybody until you're ready, but just start. As we conclude this amazing interview, we extend our heartfelt gratitude to Lester for sharing his expertise and wisdom with us, his contributions to the field of children's literature, and his commitment to inspiring educators and parents continue to leave a lasting legacy. We eagerly anticipate his future projects and look forward to the continued impact of his work on the world of literacy and education. Thank you, Lester Laminac for joining us today. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, have a good day. Thank you.